Amen. You all can be seated. Good morning, everybody. Good to see all of you. So glad that you're here. Hopefully you're doing well this morning. My name is Nick. Um, I'm always honored uh, whenever I get to open up God's word for his people. Um, we're going to be in John chapter 18 today. Um, if you're visiting us or, or for the first time today, just want to extend a, a special welcome to you. We're glad that you're here. Uh, if you're watching online, just also want to thank you for joining us from wherever you're at today. Um, it's good to be in the house of the Lord. Um, you know, we are jumping into a new sermon series. This passage changed my life. I love it. I love this idea. It allows those of us that they get to preach over the next uh, eight or nine weeks or however many weeks it is just to get to, to share with you just some of the most special passages that, to us, uh, passages that have gripped our lives. And I do wonder, I wonder what passage that would be for you or what passages. Are there certain passages in your life that the Lord has used specifically in, in your heart, mind um, to grip you? And, and I wonder for us as a church over these, these next following weeks, that might be a great question for you to just ask somebody, ask people in the, in the courtyard, ask people here at church in your community group, ask people around you just to say, hey, what, what passages in scriptures uh, change your life? I think it allows us to kind of be brought in um, to people's lives, hearts, and also we learn from each other about God that way. And, and so anyway, I just, I'm excited about this passage, but I do want us to remember and, and kind of know at this very beginning that embedded into this series is this rock solid truth that this book, the Bible, it does change our life. That because it's, it's the inspired word of God. It's, it's his word given to us. It's, it's the way that he's revealed truth to us. Truth that changes and sanctifies us as John 17 says. It's, it reveals to us about himself, about Jesus, about the gospel. And, and we also see in Hebrews chapter 4 that this book is alive. Scripture says it's living and active. That it's through the scriptures that the Lord speaks to us. And it's because of that we, we place ourselves, we stand upon it, we place ourselves under it. We seek to live by it. We seek to pursue scripture, his word to us, because it's by it that he speaks to us. And any passage where he speaks, which again, his voice is heard on every page, can change our life. And now I will say that specifically the Lord uses in each of our stories, in each of our lives, passages that do end up kind of jumping off the page. I mean, every page is his word, it's his voice, but he uses certain, certain passages for you and for me where for some reason, on that moment and that passage, the Lord, it's almost like he opens up our hearts. He opens up our eyes. And it's in these moments where we, we can say like the psalmist, like how sweet are your words, sweeter than honey. And I, and I want you to speak to me. And so I don't know, again, what it is for you. What was that passage where the Lord used to connect dots maybe for you, to give you this glimmer, this glimpse of his, of his magnitude? Or maybe it was a passage where he convicted you of sin 
and yet at the same time kind of lavished his grace on you? Or maybe there was something about the past that so fascinated you that made you just enjoy God? The passage that I'm going to point us to today in John chapter 18, it was one of those passages for me where the Lord used it to help me see Jesus in a different way. Where it helped me see him as larger and greater, as more powerful and more loving than I had seen him before I had come to it. Now, obviously, I didn't literally see Jesus But for me, it was the passage that the Lord used it to enlarge my view of him, enlarge my view of God. And in in life, you know, we we do have certain things in our life where we know know that they're amazing and they're beautiful and they're, they're large, but until we see it in person... Until we stand across from it, our, our, our knowledge, our, our awareness of it is limited. So, so until you get on your first flight and you look out the window at the world, or until you stand across right at the edge of the Grand Canyon and you get to see the expanse of it, or if you ever go to a basketball game and the first, the first time you get to see Michael Jordan or an NBA player up front on the court in person, you're like, wow, I, I thought they were tall, but now that I'm here, it changes everything. I had a seminary professor ask me once this, or ask our class once this silly kind of question, but it was, it was profound in a way. He, he says, he asked us, he says, are you a big godder or a little godder? Are you a big godder or a little godder? In essence, what he was asking us, is the God that you worship and serve and live for big or little? And does your life and your actions and your affections reflect as much? And for me, this passage that we're going to look at today is one of those passages where, where the Lord helped me see that he was big. And having your eyes open to, to a big God is like rocket fuel for your faith and for your love for Jesus. And so if you have your, have, have your copy of the scriptures, or actually, I'm actually going to have us do something a little different. I'm going to have a stand in honor of God's word as we read God's word. Now I'm going to read it. You just follow along. But if you could stand, let's look at this passage. John chapter 18, verses 1 to 11. I'll read as you follow along. This is the word of the Lord to us today. John 18, verse 1. After saying these things, Jesus crossed the Kidron Valley with his disciples and entered a grove of olive trees. Judas the betrayer knew this place because Jesus had often gone there with his disciples. The leading priests and Pharisees had given Judas a contingent of Roman soldiers and temple guards to accompany him. Now with blazing torches, lanterns, and weapons, they arrived at the olive grove. Jesus fully realized all that was going to happen to him, so he stepped forward to meet them. Who are you looking for, he asked. Jesus the Nazarene, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. As Jesus said, I am he, they all drew back and fell to the ground. Once more, he asked them, who are you looking for? And again, they replied, Jesus, the Nazarene. I told you that I am he, Jesus said, and since I am the one you want, let these others go. He did this to fulfill his own statement. I did not lose a single one of those you have given me. Then Simon Peter drew a sword and slashed off the right ear of Malchus, the high priest's slave. But Jesus said to Peter, put your sword back into its sheath. Shall I not drink from the cup of suffering the Father has given me? You can be seated. 
Thank you. This is the word of the Lord to us. So there's the passage. You see characters like Judas, a cohort of soldiers. You see Jesus, obviously. You see Peter. You even have somebody's ear getting chopped off. I mean, this is, there's a lot going on in this passage. But don't miss, it's this night of all nights. We see in this passage, the scene is changing. It's changing from the upper room to now the garden. It's, it's changing from what you saw in the previous five chapters where Jesus has this amazing and long discourse with his disciples on the last, at the Last Supper in the upper room. Chapter 17 is this high priestly prayer, but John 18 begins these events that happen, moving him to the cross. And Jesus and the 11 disciples, you see them leave the city for the night and they cross the Kidron Valley. And the Kidron Valley was this deep ravine out east of Jerusalem. During the rainy season, there'd be water flowing through. I don't get the idea that this was that time. It's probably dry, but they're, they're crossing the Kidron Valley and they're heading to this, this garden of olive trees. And we know it to be the Garden of Gethsemane, that garden where he takes his disciples and he even takes three of them and moves a little bit further away and he prays that night. And we know just from interactions in the Gospels that this place, this garden, was, was a place of reprieve for his disciples and for Jesus. It was a place that he'd go to to get rest, to get away from the crowds, to pray. But just as Jesus is heading there with his disciples, we also have Judas, the betrayer, is leading and guiding a a cohort, a contingent of soldiers to the same garden because he knows the place. And it is sad when you think about Judas, where he was face to face with Jesus for a few different years and he misses it and he chooses to side against Jesus. He makes his choice and he's leading this, this contingent of soldiers and we get this idea from the, the, the Greek word there is, is cohort or spirion and, and it meant one-tenth of a Roman legion and a Roman legion was 6,000 soldiers So he had at their disposal, probably because they were keeping the peace in Jerusalem during Passover, upwards of 600. Now, again, we don't know how many are there with him. I don't actually imagine 600, but it's a large amount. It's large enough that would necessitate a Roman commanding officer to be there with Judas, to be there with the temple guards, and they're there. And so you have the time, which was at night, and you have the location, which was away from the city, away from the crowds that that could become mobs. And they provide the betrayer with this ideal venue to bring the arresting officers right up to Jesus. And Judas knew the spot. Now, obviously, you can think, man, Jesus, if you were just hidden better, you know, like he knew the spot. But Jesus wasn't trying to hide. And with blazing torches, verse 3 lanterns and weapons, they arrived at the olive grove. Can you imagine the sight or imagine the sounds, the clanking of weapons, the the footsteps? I don't know about you, I get get scared walking through the woods. I get scared at night in the dark, away from light. I would have been running, but not Jesus. 
And in the, the, the verses that follow, you see this amazing picture of Jesus. And, and that's actually where I want the rest of the sermon to go, is just kind of to look at the next few verses and just be like, what do you see? What do you learn about Jesus? What do we see here? And the first thing that we learn about him is that he was in full control. Jesus was in charge. You see in the verse, he fully realized all that was going to happen to him. Now, the, the fully realized isn't like he heard a twig snap and he goes, oh, well, I, I realize. No, he fully realized. He, he knew. He fully knew what laid before him. You see that in John 13 where he says, Jesus knew that his hour had come. John 17 says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so he can give glory back to you. He fully realized and he steps forward. Now, for me, I'd be like, I, I'm stepping backward. But you see courage. You see initiative. He wasn't running. One commentator says Jesus was in complete control of the situation. He was not fleeing. He was not taken by surprise. He knew that Judas would meet him there, and so he went there. You know, in our worlds, because we're limited, we're, we, we're not God, we, we get blindsided. We, we get caught off guard. But not Jesus, not God, not ever. He's unarmed, but he's, he's in command of the entire situation, and he's initiating his plan, his plan that was before the creation of time was going to happen, and he's, he's moving it. One commentator or scholar, he even writes this, he says, so when Jesus crosses the brook of Kidron to a garden, which had been a favorite resort for himself and his disciples, what is happening is that the second Adam, Jesus, Jesus is the, the, the greater in second Adam, Jesus is deliberately entering upon the final conflict with the prince of evil. He's reversing the situation in the Garden of Eden where the serpent took the initiative in the assault upon the first Adam. Serpent took the initiative in the Garden of Eden. Jesus is now taking the initiative here to reverse it, to step into it, to, to bring about redemption, salvation. He was in full control. The second thing we see and we learn about Jesus is not only is he in full control, but he had great power. I love that interchange where Jesus asks, hey, who are you looking for? Jesus is Nazarene. I am he. And as Jesus says, I am he, they all drew back and they fall to the ground. And I remember the first time reading this, I kind of had to read it again. I'm like, so wait, what happened? So he, there's this full contingent of soldiers he takes initiative. He steps forward. Who are you looking for? They say Jesus. He says, I am he, and they all fall. So Roman soldiers who are trained not to fall and temple guards who had been preparing and waiting for this moment or for a moment like this to arrest him, when they come to Jesus and he says, I am he, they fall to the ground. And this reaction is a, is a reaction that accompanies standing in the presence of God. You encounter God and you fall down. Ezekiel says, I saw a vision of the Lord and I, and I fell on my face. Daniel says, when I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face. Saul on the road of Damascus, he says, falling to the ground because of the glory of God, he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul. These soldiers do not hold power over him. 
And the Lord chooses here to give us this brief glimpse to allow us to see that they're standing before a king. To allow us to see that when the Lord wills, every knee will bow. It's almost as if time stands still and heaven breaks in and he allows us to see his his fullness, his glory, his power. Which then, it reminds us of that verse, John 10, verse 18. Where Jesus, again, months, years before this moment, he's teaching his disciples and he says, listen, no one takes my life from me. I have the ability to sacrifice it voluntarily for I have the authority to lay it down when I want and also to take it up again. But this is what my father has commanded. No one takes it from me. And you see in this, this, this section though, you see that these, there's a significance in the way he says, I am he. And I know many of you see that. But that phrase, I am he, is tied directly to, to a claim to be God, a claim to divinity, a claim to being the God that the, that the Jewish people worshiped in the Old Testament, that, hey, Yahweh, that's me. And it ties right back to, his, to Exodus 3, where Moses at the burning bush says, hey, hey God, what should I call you? What's your name if they ask? And he says, here's my name. I am who I am, Yahweh. It's a statement of existence, of always existing, of always having been. And you see it also in Isaiah chapters 40 through 55. It's this section in Isaiah, the suffering servant section. It's all about the suffering servant who had come, and yet the one who had come would be God, would be the Messiah. And in multiple times in that section, there's these phrases, I am he, I am he. And you see one of them in Isaiah 48. Listen to me, O Jacob. Listen to me, O Israel, whom I've called. I am he, I am the first and the last. And, and again, he's, he's linking himself to that, to, the, to that person. You even see it all throughout the Gospel of John. He says it in 6, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was even born, I am. And the people that hear it pick up stones to stone him, and he walks right by. And you see in the Gospel of John seven different I am statements. And so this is significant, this is specific Jesus is saying, I am who I am, I am God, and and if I will, you can fall. The Gospel of John, one of the most beautiful things in this Gospel is that it's written, it's meant for us, for his disciples, to read it, to see him, so that we would believe. And I do wonder for some of us in this room today, if the Lord needs to remind you that you can trust him that he is who he says he is. He has all power, he has all control, and you, he's calling you to believe in him. So we see not only his great power or his full control, but we also see his protective care. Look at verses eight and nine. Jesus says, I told you that I am he, Jesus said, and since I am the one you want, let these others go. And he did this to fulfill his own statement. I did not lose a single one of those you had given me. Let these others go. So who's Jesus concerned about? In the midst of all this stuff that's about to happen, who's he thinking about? He's thinking about his disciples. His concern was for his followers. He's like, they, they don't need to be taken. They don't need to die. And it's remarkable that in this most dramatic of scenes, Jesus is thinking about others. You know, I've heard people say at different times, 
as they talk about their relationship with God going, you know, I don't, I have a hard time praying because I don't, I don't want to bother God with all of my stuff when all their, these other things are happening in the world. There's other things that are more bigger than what I'm going through. And I, I look at a passage like this and I go, in the most traumatic of moments, Jesus is showing us, he's teaching us, his heart is for you. His heart is for me. And I can, I can trust that, hey, he can handle it. He wants to handle it because he's, he's, he's caring, he's protective. And we see here Jesus sacrificing himself for their safety. This is a perfect picture of him substituting himself, substitutionary atonement, substituting himself so that they can go free. One pastor writes, he died not only for them, but instead of them. And we see Jesus here being the good shepherd laying down his life for the sheep. If you remember that passage, John chapter 10, there's a section where he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Now listen to this next few verses. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and he leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees, and this is the key phrase, he flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. And Jesus in here is teaching us he is not a hired hand. He's the good shepherd. He's the counter of what you see in those verses, and he cares everything for the sheep. And you see him praying to his father in John 17, says, hey, I protected them by the power of my name, that I'm not, I should not lose even one of those that you've given me, Father. And so Jesus fulfills what the scriptures have said. He fulfills the Father's will. He fulfills his promise that not one of my sheep will I lose. And I do wonder, maybe some of us, maybe you need to rub that in today. To be reminded that the Lord's not going to lose you. No matter if you feel like you've been wandering, no matter if you feel far off, if you are God's child, if he's going to pursue after you. He's going to come to your rescue. He's going to protect you. He's going to bring you back. And as a good shepherd, his grip on you is strong. Oftentimes we think about, well, is my grip on God strong? And that's, I think, the wrong way to think about it, to go, no, it's his grip on me. As the shepherd, no one could snatch me from his hand. And you see in this one story, this beautiful picture of his care, where he says, my life for theirs, which moves us to this last thing that we learn and we see about Jesus. We see his willing surrender. Jesus walks into the garden, he steps forward to meet his captors, and he identifies himself as the one they want. And with Jesus in, in full control and with great power, I mean, we see what he, what he does, he causes them to fall down. And in that, you can tell what he has the power to do. He could have struck them dead. He could have walked right through the garden. He could have caused everything to pause. Even in Matthew chapter 26, he says, don't you realize that I could ask the Father for thousands of angels to protect me and, I, and he would send them instantly. But he doesn't. And you see this passage is titled The Arrest of Jesus, but really what you're seeing here is this willing surrender of the Lord. And What's interesting, though, is that Peter doesn't get the memo. (laughs) 
um, he jumps into action. He wants to protect Jesus. He wants to defend him. He, he wants to kind of prove himself that, hey, I, I told you I'm going to lay down my life for you. I'm going to do it. And, he, and he, he strikes at a head and he hits the ear. I don't know if he just didn't fully commit or what, but it's just this really unique, unique scene. And you see in that moment, Jesus heals the man's ear. It's this beautiful moment. But we see here that when Peter addresses, or Jesus addresses Peter and says, Peter, he's like, put your sword away. Shall I not drink from the cup of suffering the Father's given me? And that cup is a reference to that prayer. Then he prays to his Father, Lord, take this cup from me if it's your will, and, but not my will, but yours be done. And, and we see here that that struggle that we know he prayed just moments before, that that struggle for him is over. That he is fully determined to drink the cup. He knows the mission and destination that's ahead of him. And the, the mission doesn't involve swords. It doesn't involve hiding. It doesn't involve um, fighting. This mission is about laying down his life. This mission is not about fighting in the way that the world does. And so I can't imagine Jesus looking at Peter and saying, Peter, I don't need you to defend me. I don't need you to protect me. And I wonder if for some of us that might be a good word too. Because Jesus doesn't need us to protect him or defend him. I think sometimes we, we look at all the things going against God in the world or by critics and we just, we just start fighting or re- reacting to defend his name. And, it, and I get it at times we need to do that in a humble way, in an honorable way. But if that's not our posture and we just start quickly reacting in anger towards the culture or towards people, or, and we try to defend them, I wonder if the Lord goes, hey, I don't need you to defend me. You don't need to protect my name. I can do that on my own. And honestly, just like we see here, sometimes it's in the suffering and in the humility where Jesus is getting, gets most glorified. And so Jesus allows them to arrest him. And the very next verse, verse 12 says, so the soldiers, their commanding officer and the temple guards arrested Jesus and tied him up. And after the verse that we just walked through, it takes on a lot more weight, doesn't it? To picture Jesus bound, tied up, the, the king of kings allowing himself to be carried away. And there's this moment where he's even brought before Pilate and Pilate starts ask, asking him these questions and he doesn't respond and Pilate pretty much says, and this is John chapter 19, says, don't you realize that I have authority to let you go or authority to crucify you? And I love what Jesus says. He says, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you. So you see Jesus' willing surrender for you and for me to destroy sin and, and death. The enemy meant it for evil, but God is greater than our enemy. There's this beautiful scene in C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe where Aslan, the lion, the Christ figure in the story, if you remember, he sacrifices, he lays down his life for Edmund. And he goes to the table, he gets killed, gets you know, ridiculed, mocked, gets killed. 
but then he does come back to life. And there's this beautiful moment where Lucy and Susan see him, and they're just in awe. They're like, what in the world is going on? What does this all mean? And Aslan speaks to them, and he says, he says, though the evil witch knew the dark magic, there is a magic deeper still which she did not know. Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time, but if she could have looked a little further back into the stillness and the darkness before time dawned, she would have read there a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim, willing surrender, who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. So a willing victim who committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. And you see in this a purpose that's deeper and greater still. And you look at a passage like this, and there's one more thing, though, that I think you and I should be thinking about. Because when you think about Aslan stepping in for Edmund, or you think about Jesus wanting his disciples to go, and he's willing, he's willing the king, letting himself to be captured and taken and go to the cross, what emotions get evoked in us? I mean, one where we, we probably hopefully feel like, man, that's because of my sin. But we also go, but, but, it's, but it's because of his love. And so what do you see about Jesus here in the midst of his great power, his full control, his care, his willing surrender? You see his love, his amazing love. And with, with the clarity of Jesus' absolute ability to leave the scene, yet you see his willing surrender, we see his love. And that's the bottom line for us today is this, is that the more that we grasp how willing Jesus was with all the power. He didn't need to go. He could have gotten away. The more you grasp how loving Jesus is. And in this one story, this one narrative, you see the word who was before time, who took on flesh. You see the great I am. You see the one who raises the dead. You see the suffering servant. You see the substitute. And all, this, and all this is wrapped up into this one scene. But hopefully it pushes us to go, man, we see his love for you and for me. He was willing to go to the cross for us. And so again, thinking about passages that changed my life. This passage changed my life because this passage changed my perspective. It helped me see Jesus and I'd pray for you today, for us today, that when, you, when you're in his word, when you look at Jesus, the Lord would continue to enlarge your heart to help you see him so that we might worship him, so we might have joy in him, and so we might want to share and tell whoever comes by about the goodness of God. Hey, let's pray today. Lord Jesus, we thank you Thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for your willing surrender. How before the beginning of time, you saw us, you had us in mind. But you see the world, you have the world in mind too. And I just pray that you'd help us be people that love others, that love you, that get so 
inspired by your grace and your mercy because it changes us that we would want to live for you in all ways. We give you this day, we give you our lives, and we once again say we, we live for you, we love you. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.